Welcome to Reformed Rakes, a romance podcast built on perfect communication. My name is Beth, and I'm on Book Talk under the name Beth Heyman Reads. I'm Emma. I'm a law librarian writing about justice and historical romance at Restorative Romance on Substack. I'm also on TikTok under the name MKick. My name is Chels. I'm the writer of the romance newsletter The Loose Cravat on Substack, a book collector, and a book talker under the name Chels underscore ebooks. Today, we're going to talk about miscommunication in romance. It's piled onto lists as the one trope that needs to die. One such article is by Jordi Macbeth of the Feminist Book Club. She says, positive communication is important in order to build a strong relationship rooted in trust and openness. Miscommunication in relationships should not be romanticized because it can lead individuals to believe that poor communication is acceptable and should be tolerated. One of the worst things, actually. (laughs) Uh, Romance, like all genres, aims to entertain and make art. Articles like this are condescending to those who read romance, as if they can't tell real life from the art they consume. Now, let's examine the most common complaint. Just have a conversation. Karina Pereira, writing for Book Riot, says, After all, why can't you just say what you have to say? Why can't you find a way to pass on the message? Or why do you continue to be in a situation you clearly don't want to be in, when an open conversation could just solve it all? I know damn well that these conversations are harder in practice than they are in theory, even in books. What's interesting to me about Prayer's article is she acknowledges how she struggles with miscommunication in books at times, which, fair, but she does find it to be quite relatable and similar to real life. Why don't characters just talk about it? Don't you know that if you use words, everything you mean to say will come out in the right order and the person listening will completely understand? This only needs to happen one time as well. You don't need conflict in your books, dear reader. So, as ardent defenders of miscommunication, we're going to show you how it's essential to the romance genre. Let's maybe start by defining miscommunication. Emma, we'll start with you since you had a good point in one of our conversations about the difference between miscommunication and the miscommunication trope. Could you explain what you see as the difference? To me, in order for something to be a trope, it has to have beats that it follows. Enemies to lovers is a good example, and that means there's going to be some sort of pre-existing conflict that has to be overcome. Even something more simplistic, like only one bed at the inn, can be resolved in a few different ways. Like they get into the bed and are overcome and sleep together. They get into the bed and build tension by not sleeping together. Or someone valiantly decides to sleep on the floor to prove their integrity. All these books are sort of in communication with each other when they engage with that trope. So miscommunication trope has to be in dialogue with other miscommunication tropes. And I think the word gets applied so widely to the point where it just can't be just a trope. I think there are tropes under sort of this umbrella of miscommunication. I would class things like eavesdropping and misinterpreting a message or a message being misdelivered as tropes under that umbrella of miscommunication. They are all carving out a path for a plot to either follow the beats or subvert them. But romance tends to focus on relationships and what are the causes of interpersonal conflict in real life? being scared to articulate your feelings or articulating them in a way that leads to misinterpretation. A lot of the romances that I can think of that don't rely on some sort of miscommunication actually feel like hybrid genres, like a romance and a mystery if they're solving a crime, or a romance and adventure, like if someone gets kidnapped in the third act. 
To create a conflict in a romance novel, for there to be a plot, there has to be realistic tension. And 99% of the time, that is going to come from people talking to each other and something not going quite right. That's miscommunication. But to me, it's not necessarily always miscommunication trope. On TikTok last year, I said I was so curious about people who say they don't like miscommunication because I felt like it was vital to romance. And the response I got was pretty interesting. So I listed out a few books that I love that are miscommunication books, some of which we will talk about in this episode. And people in the comments told me that my examples didn't count because it was miscommunication done well, or because it wasn't miscommunication that breaks up the couple. I don't think there's a standard understanding of what miscommunication falls under miscommunication trope. I think when people combine the two words, it ends up being a pejorative, a way to talk about something that happened that you don't like. In fact, I think a lot of times when people say miscommunication trope, they're thinking about a very specific book or a very specific scenario that doesn't work for them. But the brush is way too broad for it to be meaningful in conversation or criticism. Miscommunication done well is still miscommunication. And if you acknowledge that, it's much harder to make sweeping statements. You both basically covered on how essential miscommunication is to romance. So let's talk about that a little bit. So why would you say miscommunication is necessary to the structure of romance or what is its purpose in romance? So not to get too far into like semiotic theory, which I always say when I'm about to get too far into semiotics, <laughs> but any system of reference where we are assigning labels to things is inherently restrictive compared to the expanse of unlabeled meaning. Semiotics as a study distinguishes language from speech, and language is the system of reference. Roland Barthes, who's a French uh, semiotician, describes language as a collective contract that one must accept in its entirety if one wishes to communicate. It is the social institution and requires buy-in from every party who's attempting to communicate. But speech, as opposed to language, is individual. Each person gets to choose how they talk and what they say, and they are expressing personal thought. One more relevant quote from Estonian semiotician Yuri Lotman, quote, non-understanding, incomplete understanding, or misunderstanding are not side products of the exchange of communication, but its very essence. To me, this is the great conflict of romance, how to get my speech to match up with someone else's understanding of language. Romance characters talk about some of the most abstract concepts available to humans, feelings of love, of loyalty, of duty, of anxiety, and they're bringing their whole past selves to each of these conversations. Characters have to work through the disconnects of personal speech, and that is where miscommunication happens. A lot of the conflict in romance novels is internal. Why do I feel this way I don't want to feel? Why do I love this person when it's the wrong time? Am I good enough for this? Am I ready for this? When you have two people that you're trying to bring together, they're asking themselves these questions and filling in the blanks for the other person. There are lots of romance novels where there are external forces keeping the couple apart and driving the conflict, but even those will have some level of miscommunication. Great romance novels revel in how we're fallible, how even with the best of intentions we get it wrong. If there wasn't some sort of miscommunication in the book, it would be difficult to craft a compelling character arc. Right. Since romance is a character-driven genre, then communication itself becomes vital. And it's interesting to explore when communication breaks down and what kind of conflict results from that. 
And then another main point I would say why miscommunication is essential to romance is that it drives the relationship forward as each character resolves those misunderstandings. And then you can now proceed based on your new correct knowledge or you might break apart. In the process of resolving the miscommunication, then each character has a chance to learn something or grow. So obviously we love miscommunication, but <laughs> other people say they dislike it, as we've talked about. So, and they'll say, just talk to each other. Is that a valid criticism? I think sometimes when people are talking about the characters in a romance novel and they just want the characters to talk to each other, I think it might stem from people not wanting to criticize an author directly so instead, they say the characters are acting in unbelievable ways. So there's this distance between the critique and critiquing the author's writing. The few times that I've thought, oh my god, just have a conversation, it is because the author provides no scaffolding to the conflict. But in a historical romance, at least, there's always this layer of propriety that explains why people might not want to have a conversation. I think the distance between current day and historical settings is smaller than we might believe at first with regards to anxiety about intimacy or saying how you feel. But in historical settings, it is easier to believe, oh, they're worried about what the ton might think if they're direct with the words and it comes back to bite them. So there's already sort of that scaffolding that exists in historical romance just because of the layer of society anxiety. I kind of feel two ways about this. I have gotten to the point where I'll think, just talk to each other when I'm frustrated. But I think a lot of times that's because the characterization doesn't fit the actions. We don't have enough of an understanding of why a character would withhold information when, to us, it seems like only good things can come of it. I also think, particularly in dual POV, we get the benefit of seeing into both characters' heads. If one character has a huge fear about how their love interest will react to a candid conversation, we might know that that fear is unfounded, but that character doesn't necessarily. Sometimes, though, just talk to each other feels a little bit silly, like a refusal to empathize with characters or to take their fears and misgivings seriously. Yes, I 100% agree with both points. And I would add that I think if you're frustrated with the characters, that's not necessarily a bad thing. If the author has crafted the tension well, it can mean you're deeply invested and you're along for the relationship milestones. And I don't want to invalidate all frustration people feel when reading this communication, especially where the author hasn't pulled off a believable scenario. Of course, that can still happen, like what Emma said. I think if you're feeling that way, is it that the writing is bad or do these characters have justifiable reasons to not talk yet? Fear, anger, jealousy, lack of trust, all kinds of emotions can take over our better judgment. Even once you know what both characters' deals are, oftentimes the emotional damage is done. Knowledge doesn't undo hurt. So we talked a bit about dual point of view, so I wanted to ask both of you, how does dual POV enhance miscommunication? I love dual POV as a convention. It's probably my favorite sort of structural element that's a, a real convention um, in most historical romance. And so many of my favorite books involve playing with dual POV and the reader bearing witness to these misinterpretations by getting both sides of the story. Mary Balog, who is not always the most exciting author, structure, or plot-wise, does this thing in at least two of her books where she shows the two POVs of the same scene. You'll get the hero's POV, and then we'll jump back into the heroines. We'll get the same scene over again. It happens in The Proposal, which I think is one of her best miscommunication books. 
Hugo, who has been made an earl because of valor during the Napoleonic Wars, has a lot of pride in being middle class, and this comes with speaking very matter-of-factly. Gwen, Lady Muir, is used to coded compliments and insults, so she continually assumes that Hugo means more or less than his direct comments. There was also an added element of Hugo having to relearn how to speak after the war. He's suffering from PTSD, from a particularly fatal battle that his troop was in, and this manifested in struggling to communicate at all. We see Gwen process his bearing his soul verbally as a form of intimacy that easily transforms into physical intimacy. She uses words associated with language, like translated, as they're becoming more physically intimate. But when Hugo suddenly proposes after they have sex, he struggles to articulate much of anything and ends up asking her to marry him so that his sister can have an entry into the world of the Tan. When Gwen refuses, he thinks she would have refused him no matter how he worded his proposal, but he didn't need to make such a mull of it. When Gwen asks him if this is the only reason that he proposed, he thinks of a few reasons that feel incomplete and is unable to say any of them to her. Gwen asks him the same question again. Is his sister the only reason he came to see her and propose? And he responds with a simple no, still unable to articulate anything more concrete. With what Balak does with the POV is that we then jump back into Gwen's mind, leading up to her asking him about his motivations for the proposal, and she interprets his actions in the worst faith possible, with his sister's advancement as, the pur as a purpose to use her. But then she decides that there must be more. Using her in this way is incompatible with what she knows about his extreme black and white morals. She guesses that the speech he performed was a makeshift one, and that he had forgotten a more romantic one because he was so nervous. So she takes a leap of faith and asks him clarifying questions. This is not the end of communication questions for Hugo and Gwen. And Balak does the parallel scene structure a few different times. But it felt so novel to see both processes of the origin of miscommunication. You see Hugo literally unable to articulate his attraction to Gwen, even to himself, because he's already struggling with the language of emotion from his PTSD. And you also see Gwen's impulse to assume anything Hugo is saying to her as a coded insult. I love dual POV because we get an inside look into why exactly two characters are not understanding each other. A lot of times miscommunication boils down to feelings, perception, and motivation. And when you're reading a book with dual POV, you get more of the framework of the miscommunication and what baggage each character is bringing to the conversation or lack thereof. In Forever and Ever by Patricia Gaffney, there's a constant cycle of miscommunication between Sophie, who owns a mine that she inherited from her father, and Connor, the man who is undercover investigating that mine. They can't bring in themselves to be honest and vulnerable with each other, to clear the air, because they assume the worst about the other character. What's so brilliant about getting into their heads is that they're right. Sophie feels as though Connor thinks she's a snob, and Connor most definitely does. Connor thinks Sophie is embarrassed by his station, and she is. But that's half the picture, because while they do have these uncharitable thoughts about each other, they also love and respect each other. The miscommunication is born out of the truth, and there are legitimate reasons why they aren't speaking and laying themselves bare. But if this book wasn't dual POV, you wouldn't know that. I also have a book I wanted to reference. Um, <laughs> there's this great scene in A Woman Entangled by Cecilia Grant. It's 1817. Nick and Kate have settled into friendship after Kate rejected Nick's marriage proposal. Nick's brother has married a former sex worker, so to save his political career he's cut ties with his brother so kate and nick are talking about kate trying to enter a higher social sphere nick says it wouldn't be easily done then kate says 
I never supposed it was. I don't limit myself to easy undertakings, you see. <laughs> and you'll pardon me, I hope, for questioning the extent of your authority on the intricacies of society. She means it in the way that he doesn't go out much. Something she's teased him about in the past. But when he's shocked, she realizes he could have been insulted by her words by, because of his connection to Will. A few pages later, from Nick's perspective... He's still hurting from the insult, even though he thinks she's likely referencing how he doesn't go out. But they still need to clear the air. So why I love that this isn't dual perspective, we can see Nick's hurt and he knows the likelihood of what she really meant. Because Kate misstepped, she has to focus on him. And while she's quite attentive to everyone in her orbit, she can be a little single-minded on her social climbing. So we get several things out of this one instance of miscommunication. A chance to repair the relationship and then move it forward for Kate to open up to Nick, and then Nick frankly acknowledging he still has a regard for her, but he won't ever act on it. Dual POV allows us to see how each character views this interaction and how it changes them or their relationship or both. Alright, so we have ardently defended miscommunication, but like all other tropes, it can be done badly. What's an example where you think the author didn't quite pull it off and what would be the fix for it? Or perhaps in general, why miscommunication might not work? So one book that really frustrated me with how the miscommunication worked in it was Seven Nights in a Rogue's Bed by Anna Campbell. The heroine is really adamant about never wanting to marry, even if it costs her the chance to have a family. For some convoluted plot reasons, the heroine has an arrangement with the hero where she has to stay in his home for seven nights and he is trying to seduce her. He insists in this relationship that if she becomes pregnant, she tells him and they marry. She continues to repeat that she does not want to get married. Basically, the miscommunication comes down to him not listening to her. At some certain points, I wasn't even sure if he remembered having the conversation. She is similarly hiding information from the hero about his legitimacy, which would dramatically change the stakes of all the decisions that he makes in the book. But this miscommunication is coupled with what I thought were underdeveloped characters. It is less about the mechanics of the miscommunication I had an issue with, but I never understood why anyone was doing anything, because they were ignoring information that they seemed to already have. As we've kind of mentioned, a lot of times miscommunication doesn't work because it happens in a way that doesn't fit with the characterization. But a miscommunication that doesn't work for me is actually entirely in character. I'm obsessed with Whitney, my love. Kind of the way that the hero of the book, Clayton, is obsessed with Whitney. Like, I love it, but I don't really understand it. <laughs> I hate it, but I don't really hate it. Uh, this book has such a staying power in my mind, and it's one that I reference all the time. Um, so Clayton, the Duke of Westmoreland, pursues Whitney throughout the book. He sees her at a masquerade in France and decides that he wants her, so he pursues her back in England. He comes to an agreement with her father, so he's going to marry Whitney regardless of what she wants, but he decides that he wants to circumspectly win her over. So to do that, he pretends to be a regular person who is definitely not a duke in order to get her to fall in love with him. Whitney has been obsessed with her neighbor, so this part is genuinely very funny because the duke is struggling to get her attention and is extremely jealous. But when they actually get in a relationship, their miscommunications are cyclical. The Duke, acting off of partial information, takes the least charitable interpretation of Whitney's actions, viciously punishes her, and then has to grovel. This happens in a big and devastating way twice, which was one time too many. I really believe that Clayton would act this way. He's bombastic, used to getting what he wants, obsessed with Whitney, but unwilling to take the time to understand her well enough to stop putting their relationship in this situation. 
But the second go-round was exhausting, and the book is so lengthy that I think the story would only benefit from cutting it out entirely. So we've covered some good points, and I'd like to talk about different types of miscommunication and how that adds to the story. This isn't all the kinds of miscommunication, but enough to point out miscommunication is good, actually. Uh, We'll start with the seminal work Flowers from the Storm by Laura Kinsale. There's multiple types of miscommunication in this book, but we'll start talking about miscommunication based on class. So Flowers from the Storm is a Regency romance between the Duke of Chauveau and Archimedia Timms, who goes by Maddie. The story starts with Chauveau having a stroke during a duel. The effects of the stroke hinder his ability to communicate with his family, and since they won't take the time to learn, they just label him as aggressive and send him off to an asylum to recover. One part of his family, his sister's husbands, want to cut him off from the dukedom entirely and are using his incarceration at the asylum as an excuse to do so. His mother sees his stroke as a punishment for the duke's rakish ways, so her motivations aren't as mercenary, but they are lacking in empathy. The Duke's love interest, Maddie, is a Quaker in every sense of the word. She has notions of community and equality that are foreign and alienating to the non-Quaker population, who are more invested in upholding class stratifiers. Maddie knew Chauveau before he had a stroke, as he worked on a mathematics paper with her father. So when she starts to work at the asylum that's owned by her Quaker cousin, she instinctively knows that he's not mad like people are saying, and she has a more vested interest in communicating with him. So there's the obvious miscommunications here. Chauveau is struggling with speech and has outbursts born of frustration when he can't get Maddie to understand. But Kinsale rather brilliantly layers this with class miscommunication. Being a duke is even more unusual than being a Quaker. There are so few dukes in England, and it's a position of wealth and privilege that we can sort of grasp but not truly understand because it's so far outside of our own experiences. As a Quaker, Maddie is about as far removed from a duke as possible. She doesn't believe in social hierarchies and insists on using thee and thou instead of your grace. An early miscommunication that I think is the most heartbreaking happens within the asylum. Maddie finds the Duke's clothes, and she wants to make him feel more like himself by helping him get dressed. She picks out an outfit that she's seen before, something that she thinks will make him look dashing, but she ends up dressing him in spurs. The Duke interprets the spurs as a sign that they are going outside, that she's helping him escape the hellish asylum. Maddie had no such intention, and the moment the Duke realizes this, he's overcome with rage, thinking that Maddie was taunting him. Maddie is devastated to realize that she inadvertently gave him false expectations, and she chastises herself for not realizing that the reason she recognized the spurs were because she's seen them on gentlemen wearing them on horseback. Much later in the book, outside the asylum, they're married. It's a marriage of convenience. But there's still the threat that the Duke will have to go back if his competency hearing does not go well. The Duke has recovered some of his speech, but he still struggles. Word has gotten out that he's in debt, which is causing all sorts of problems with his estate. The Duke knows that, as an aristocrat, the best way to fight these rumors is to rack up spending as if nothing is wrong, and slowly repay as needed. But Maddie, a Quaker that takes pride in honesty and modest living, does not understand this concept. The Duke doesn't have the words to explain it to her, but it's very likely that even if he did, he wouldn't be able to convey this to Maddie. The way aristocrats behave are so divorced from her values that it's possible there would never be an easy solution here. 
So we've all three read this book before, um, and I think we all love it. Um, but with miscommunication in this book, the moment um, where the Duke gets dressed is so particularly heartbreaking. But there's this moment that happens immediately after it where you, it, with what Kinsale does is that the Duke is only clear in his mind. He is able to think in full sentences even before he's able to articulate them. And you hear the Duke think, like, I'm going to ruin her life over this miscommunication. <laughs> and what Kinsale does is so smart is that we – it feels like the other shoe is dropped, like that this is going to be the defining sort of anguish of the book that he is now going to enact revenge on her for making him feel so embarrassed. But because we're in his mind and he's so unable to articulate anything or do anything, he sort of has to abandon that anger over the miscommunication pretty quickly because he just doesn't have any power that he's so used to having. So I think that's a great way that the way the miscommunication sort of manifests for these two characters who are suddenly in a totally different power dynamic than they're used to. Uh, miscommunication for him is not just embarrassment or confusion. It's a total upheaval of what he's able to do. Even if what he's able to do is something that we don't really want him to do, he can't actually ruin Maddie's life. We don't want him to ruin Maddie's life. But he suddenly like can't even enact a plan of like, he can't even move forward um, with his like worst impulses. Um, he has to change everything about how he communicates and how he moves through the world. The the money part, like where Maddie discovers his finances and it's just so outside of her world. And I love that Kinsale grounds like his dukeness. I don't know how to say because <laughs> it's kind of a, a, a thing in romance that we have so many dukes, but it is so rare and how he lives and operates like you said Chels, is just so outside of her realm like when she is looking at the papers and he's like in his mind thinking like i've got this under control i know what i'm doing but he can't communicate it i do i feel so much for him like he is such an angry character but how else would you respond like you're like your body's kind of failing you in a way yeah and it's heightened by the fact that he is dependent on her for the entirety of the book like right. his well-being like his safety uh so he enmeshed that with his feelings about her mm -hmm. and then also them not being able to understand each other this book is so fraught and it's just like an angst train. And it's I think of it as the miscommunication book because uh, everything everything that Kinsale does in Flowers from the Storm just further builds the tension and makes it, uh, you don't get a break. You don't get a break till the end. No, it's a harrowing read. I will say that. This is one where I feel like people, if you suggested this as a miscommunication book, people would say, that's not it's not miscommunication trope. Like, it's outside of that. But I think the stroke in his inability to articulate words, Kinsale layers it. Like, there are other miscommunications that are happening. So it's like the the physical manifestation of his disability is speaking to the class differences and the personality differences. So it's not just that a message is being misinterpreted and it's this, like, plot driver. It's everything about the relationship. So it the... The physical disability that leads to miscommunication, which people might say, well, that's not really miscommunication. It, it's something outside of that. It, it speaks to the rest of it. And I think the best miscommunication books often do that, where it's about language and speech altogether. So it's going to be coming in all these different directions. So it seems more complicated than a misinterpreted message or um, like overhearing something because it's it's layered, but it's still it's still miscommunication. 
A hundred percent. Like I just, I think it is the miscommunication book and you're absolutely right. Cause this was one of the books that I brought up on TikTok as being a miscommunication book. And then people are like, no, it's, this one is good. <laughs> and I'm like, well, I know, but it's still, it's kind of <laughs> to what Emma said, where it's like, there's a difference between miscommunication trope and then miscommunication. And this book is miscommunication, I would say, where it's just the layers of it. Yeah. Okay. We could talk about Fires from the Storm. We could, we could do a whole episode. episode. <laughs> which we probably will. Stay tuned, everybody. Uh, but we're, we're going to move on to another book where holding back your feelings is... Or you hold back your feelings because feelings are scary. Yeah. So I want to talk about Ravishing the Irish by Sherry Thomas. This is a book I feel like people would say just have a conversation because there's mm-hmm. not a whole lot of um, new information that is developed. Like the characters have information already and they are, they're working on sharing it with each other. So Ravishing the Heiress is one of Thomas's dual timeline second chance romances. She does this a couple times and I think this format really lends itself to miscommunication. Millie and Fitz are in a marriage of convenience. She has loved him from the jump, immediately smitten with everything about him. But when they got married, primarily out of a sense of duty, she is the titular heiress, he is titled, and his title and lands need her money. He was in love with his childhood sweetheart. Fitz initially acts cold towards Millie until she points out that he is not the only person in the marriage to give up opportunities for love by entering into this marriage. Millie lets Fitz think that she has a sweetheart she gave up for duty, But what she actually means is that she gave up any chance at his true affection because he resents her so much as the manifestation of his duty trumping his romance. They operate in this holding pattern for about the first decade of their marriage, Fit discreetly conducting affairs with other women, Millie pining after him as they fall into a relationship that is a hybrid of best friends and business partners. Even when they were engaged, Millie had told Fitz that she wants to wait to consummate their marriage. She first suggests six years, he counters with eight, seemingly confirming to her that he wants nothing to do with her sexually. Everything changes when Fitz's sweetheart returns, newly widowed, and he considers taking up with her again. Millie, prioritizing Fitz's happiness, agrees as long as they can finally make an effort to have a child. Throughout the book, the way I would describe Millie and Fitz is entrenched. Because of this dual timeline, we see moments of each of them attempting courage to drag themselves out of the stasis. On a trip to Italy during their marriage, they have to stay in the same bed, and Fitz berates himself for extending the non-consummation agreement to eight years. He is fascinated by Millie, but believes her romantically indifferent to him. All while Millie is at a loss for how to communicate to her husband her feelings, since she believes it will lead to a loss of friendship that she holds dear. Even when Millie is able to confess her feelings, Fitz is now at a loss of how to process them. He cannot simply respond that he also loves her. He has to realize that he has been loving her the whole time as they've built a life together. The words are not the hard part. It's the leap of faith. I love this book so much. (laughs) And I think this book also has such an easy answer to why don't they just talk about each other? Because Fitz like loads so many reasons why Millie would never want to speak to him at the beginning of the book. So at the beginning of the book, he uh, he doesn't want to marry her and he throws a fit. Like he shows up to their wedding drunk. He um, he just kind of is listless for days. He's openly pining for his lost love, basically making Millie feel worthless. And Millie has to slowly, carefully, over the course of many years, make their marriage work. So she's built this marriage kind of from the ground up. Like Fitz does kind of like start to participate too. Uh, but it's kind of like without her efforts, it none of that would have happened. So she has done all of this work to get to a place where things are finally okay. And why would she communicate to this man who just 
was so openly disgusted with the idea of being married to her that she wants to, that she loves him. Why would she ever do that? And he also doesn't understand that she could love him because he remembers all of his bad behavior. And he thinks her distance keeping is a response to that rather than a self-protection. He he assumes that she has become like, is uninterested in him romantically because of those years of ignoring her. I think he must also see her as someone in a similar boat because she did say like, well, I was in love with someone as well. So he's like, okay, we're both loyal to our first loves and just kind of hung up on that idea. Mm-hmm. And I, I can sympathize with that because sometimes it, it takes a while for you to sh- shift your worldview as things have changed so gradually between them as well. Like it's over eight years. It's not like this happened in one month. <laughs> it's a yeah. very, very set dynamic. Yeah, the dual POV and the dual timeline is also interesting for the reader because you're really, I always say with dual time timelines and dual POV, you're not getting two perspectives, you're getting four perspectives because you have to manage the knowledge that each character has on both sides of the timeline. And that's really interesting to see how Thomas manages those knowledge bases where it's like Fitz is sort of gaining affection for her and he's like, oh, my wife is enjoying my company. I'm making her proud. But he's constantly remembering that she has feelings for someone else and he needs to respect her and keep this distance from her. Um, and keep it platonic. And so in both timelines, you're seeing him negotiate those things with different sort of intimacy levels. And it's amazing. Every time Thomas does a dual timeline romance, I'm just like agog at how good she is at managing all four knowledge bases. Yeah, we love Sherry Thomas. (laughs) Incredible book. Incredible. Point for miscommunication. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, so I guess kind of to get into another type of miscommunication, one is when you make an assumption about another character that can lead to that. So the example I have for that is The Bittersweet Bride by Vanessa Riley. So this is a second chance romance between Ewan and Theo. They were in a relationship six years earlier when Theo worked in a flower shop and Ewan had dreams of becoming a playwright, which is a pretty steep fall from grace for an aristocrat's son. They sleep with each other since they're intending to marry, but Ewan's father discovers them. Ewan decides not to marry Theo immediately, but instead goes off to war, saying he will return for her after a year. Very soon after he leaves, Theo learns that he is dead. He isn't, but this isn't just a misconception born of malice. Ewan's death was reported, and Theo never got the correction. Alone, and no longer virtuous, Theo quickly agrees to become another man's mistress and marries him. When Ewan learns about this, he decides not to come back home from the war, thinking that Theo is fickle, conniving, and that she betrayed him. When Ewan returns, Theo is shocked to learn that he is still alive. They quickly reconcile the miscommunication that Theo married because she thought Ewan was dead. But this doesn't really change Ewan's mind. He's from a place of profound privilege, and yet he feels like, because he wants to be a playwright, he's being discriminated against and disrespected by his family. Theo is actually marginalized. She's a black woman who has an uphill battle for financial success. Everything Theo has worked for is precarious, and Ewan doesn't understand that she would need to quickly find a new protector in the event of his death. To him, this just reads as conniving and ruthless behavior, so he treats her cruelly, even though he still loves her. So Ewan is very unlikable in the beginning, and the miscommunication really does a lot of the character work. Both Theo and Ewan have occupational dreams, but Ewan is so steeped in second son syndrome that he can't empathize with Theo's plight. To him, he's the victim, first by his family, then by Theo. So for this book, I feel like Riley uses the miscommunication to build up 
Ewan's character. Like, she uses the miscommunication to make Ewan so thoroughly unlikable at the beginning and kind of create that character arc, like him coming around, him finally doing right by Theo. It, this is this I think speaks to the we talk about like everyone always brings all their baggage to every conversation that they have. Like when you're reading this character, I've not read this book, but I'm very excited to. But it seems like you Ewan is like we don't want him to act this way. Like it, he's being mean to the heroine, right? We want him to get to a place where he's nice, but if he started off as like a good faith interpreter of her actions, there would be no conflict in the book, and then there wouldn't be a book. They would just get back together when he comes back from the war. But it, so it's like a believable miscommunication because he has not worked on his character. He has this chip on his shoulder from being the second son, and that makes sense. And so it's like that character work is is grounding the miscommunication that makes it both believable and also interesting to read. And I do love the phrase second son syndrome. <laughs> I like, I had to avoid looking at you, Beth, because you're my second son. Yeah, second son of the podcast. <laughs> I wonder if second sons mis- like, misinterpret things more often. Like, are they more prone in romance novels There's to like, be a bad faith there. readings? Yeah. I, yeah, I feel like second sons are always the ones that are just like, I'm not the beloved child. I have to prove myself and by going in trade. (laughs) It's like my dad always thought the worst of me. So I assume that you're thinking the worst of me all the time too, heroine. Yeah. Yeah. It's like everybody wants to be a Duke's wife. Nobody wants to be a Duke's son's wife. Right. Right. (laughs) Um, Another type of miscommunication we wanted to go over is keeping a secret from the other person and then it blows up in that person's face so characters keep secrets and it's often to their detriment of course people keep secrets for lots of reasons it's emotionally difficult to talk about it will hurt the person once they find out they don't want to risk the relationship so this is exemplified well in ruin of a rake by cat sebastian julian medlock has honed his social skills to ensure the perfect image among the gentry lord courtney is a disillusioned aristocrat known for his exploits a gothic novel featuring a villain with Courtney's looks and mannerisms circulates England. Because of this book, Courtney is banned from seeing his nephew. Julian's sister, a friend to Courtney, arranges for Julian to rehabilitate Courtney's image so he can see his nephew again. As the relationship heats up between Courtney and Julian, outside of what either was expecting, it's revealed Julian wrote the gothic novel. He doesn't tell Courtney either. It's Julian's brother-in-law who tells Courtney. I think this is interesting because I definitely related to Julian and not telling Courtney. How do you even start that conversation? By the way, I wrote a book about you when I was sick to pass the time. Then Courtney might actually guess how long Julian's been low-key obsessed with him. (laughs) (laughs) Once the secret's revealed, unsurprisingly, Courtney breaks things off. Julian knows he's messed up, but really struggles to convey his regret. Even though Courtney's angry when Julian falls sick again, Courtney can't stay away. Even that action of Courtney nursing Julian back to health helps Julian realize his depth of feeling since Courtney's the only person he's ever wanted to stick around when he's sick. So I think anyone who knows anything about me knows I'm obsessed with the Turner series. Uh, This is my favorite one of the four. I think another thing I should mention is there's like a bit of an age gap between Julian and Courtney. Not big. I think he's like 24 and Courtney is 31. So I feel like Courtney Mm -hmm. just does have that little bit more sense of the world is just a little bit more set in who he is where i think julian is still struggling to find his footing so there's that dynamic at play as well 
Yeah, Courtney is very worldly. Like he's had all these lovers and experiences, and he's very uh, empath. He's a very empathetic person. Yes, and he's um, he he's his goal is to he's curious about people. His goal is to understand them better, and he generally really likes people. Meanwhile, Julian is really good at at reading people for one specific purpose. Like he can read people in order to kind of like assist in his social climbing, but he's not really as good at doing that like interpersonally. And so he misreads Courtney uh, from the first time he meets him, uh, and he, which is kind of why the the character that he builds off Courtney for his book is not like. It's not in like Courtney in theory. Yeah, it's like he's like this like draconian evil man with sexy eyes. <laughs> like like you can tell Julian was horny when he wrote oh, yeah. it. <laughs> um but yeah, I I can absolutely like I so so Julian has been obsessed with Courtney for a long time. It's so much that he, he like kind of wrote Courtney into this book. But like when he actually starts to build that relationship with him, like how embarrassing. Like I don't think oh, I don't I think would I would die. know. <laughs> <laughs> We're never gonna just, talk about this. It's just like because it's like if you do tell him, you're tanking the relationship. So either way the relationship is tanked. So yeah. he has to make the gamble of like, well, maybe he'll never find out, which was Silly. Which the the tell like this is one of those books that people would read and they would think, well, like, just tell him, just tell like that's the solution. Mm-hmm. But I was thinking of um, Beguiling the Beauty um, by Sherry Thomas. That's one where there's like a secret kept. Um, the heroine has amnesia and hated the hero before she gets amnesia. But once she gets amnesia, she starts falling in love with the hero. So he has to decide whether to tell her like their animosity before, and he does. It's like it's not revealed to her by a third party. And there's still conflict. Like, like a secret is still a secret and there's still like upsetting information no matter which party tells the person. So just telling someone and being forthcoming is not necessarily a solution to a secret or a solution that is neat and easy. So I think even if um, the secret was revealed by the person who's keeping it, there's still conflict. So that's not a, a band-aid to miscommunication. It just puts it on a different path of like how what conversations need to be had. That was tempting the bride. Oh, Tempting the Right. What did I say? The Beguiling Beauty. <laughs> but Beguiling Beauty is also very interesting. But I, yes, I that, agree. that one has a secret too, right? Because yes. she's secretly the person that he's been obsessed with. Right. Yeah, so we have another obsession here. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, another book we all love, Lord of Scoundrels. Oh. I don't even want to call this one. I put like a literal misunderstanding or maybe, and then maybe misinterpretation. So. Yeah. So... I'm- there, there's lots of communication issues in this book, mostly stemming from Dane um, or Sebastian, his first name. Dane is his, his title, or I guess, is this his title? He's like Lord Dane, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. He's like deep, like lack of self-worth. So I'm calling this misinterpretation, the one, the example that I'm going to bring in, because the, both characters are misinterpreting the same set of information, leading to a miscommunication between them. So Dane is romancing Jessica, but he's already assuming that Jessica is only pretending to enjoy his company because he's so utterly convinced that everyone finds him ugly and unbearable. He's not ugly. He's just half Italian. (laughs) Oh my 
God. <laughs> but his dad was incredibly xenophobic. And he's mostly unbearable because he keeps insisting that he's super unbearable. So when Jessica finally dances with Dane at a ball and allows him to whisk her away to be alone, he's waiting for the other shoe to drop, where it's going to be revealed that she's laughing at his expense. There's another layer of miscommunication since Dane insists on speaking to Jessica in Italian during the seduction. So all of his efforts to be earnest are pretty just are just pretty noises in her ear. Chase is just layering the disconnects that need to be resolved. Jessica is similarly confused by her extreme desire for Dane. She's using language in her mind that matches how society talks about Dane, animalistic, monster, dangerous, that is incompatible with her intimate vision of him, but she's not yet developed a vocabulary of her own for him. As they are kissing and about to do more, Dane and Jessica are discovered. She suspects that he arranged the audience so he could get revenge on her for capturing his attention and making him have feelings for her. He similarly assumes that Jessica arranged the onlookers to make him look foolish. Everyone will laugh at Dane for becoming besotted with this hoyden of a spinster. When Jessica begs for him to do something, he assumes she is trying to bully him into a wedding proposal, whereas Jessica means something closer to use your withering self to put stop to the gossip and keep me from being ruined. She wanted him to shield her, but she assumes that only she had anything to lose in that scenario, not quite understanding the extent to Dane's self-hatred and embarrassment at being laughed at. He really assumes that she is disgusted by him and just has this deep, penetrating lack of self-worth that she can't quite comprehend because she finds him so irresistible, and he can't articulate because he assumes it is the truth that everyone sees. I won't spoil what happens next, though if you don't know, you should read Lord of Scoundrels. It's as good as everyone says it is. But both of these characters are making assumptions about the other's behavior and in misinterpreting the same events based on information that they have. Dane keeps telling Jessica that he's so, so bad and cruel, so she assumes that he does something cruel and vengeful. Dane really thinks that Jessica finds him disgusting and embarrassing, so he assumes she does something to mock and embarrass him. And I love that the actual precipitating misapprehension is resolved pretty quickly. Within two chapters, Chase has both characters understand that the other did not arrange the interruption of their assignation. But while that is cleared up with one conversation, the underlying communications are not. Those take the rest of the novel. It really all just boils down to Dane thinks he's so ugly and <laughs> nobody could ever. I, I really it's so crazy to me to think about that. Like I I'm tr I was trying to think of like other romance novels where the heterosexual romance novels where the man had like such a low, low self-worth about his physical appearance in that way mm -hmm. that kind of just like spread throughout the book. And I couldn't really think of one. That doesn't mean it doesn't exist. But yeah. I think Chase kind of lays rare. the groundwork so well with his self-worth in the best prologue you'll ever read in your life. Oh, my God. <laughs> like I'll, that, That's like an argument for prologues. Like, I was maybe, like, in the middle, but I'm like, okay, this is actually doing some serious work here. So Chase is like, need, so everyone a, hates this baby. <laughs> you need a buy-in that, that he feels so badly about himself. So, yeah. Yeah, and Chase calls this book a Beauty and the Beast retelling, and I love that it's a Beauty and the Beast retelling where, like, society doesn't think that Dane is ugly. Like, it's so in his own head. It really is his interpretation of this, like, deep trauma of being unloved and hated by his father for reasons that really have nothing to do with him. But it's like, you can become a beast of, like, self-hatred. It's like, he becomes this recluse. He becomes sort of, like, antisocial just from his own self-image. Because he's always saying, like, everyone hates me. And it's like, he has friends. He seduces women. Like, people are interested in having him around. He gets invited to parties. People are excited him for, for him to be there. 
But until he does his own like work on his self-worth, it doesn't really matter what anyone else says to him, including Jessica. Because she And she's enamored with him immediately. She can't get over how adorable she finds his big nose, which is his like big social, um, anxiety about what he looks like. But it, it just, it works so well. But yeah, the misapprehension, I love that it gets cleared up so fast. But it, 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 the underlying issues are not solved with one conversation. It has to be like work on both sides. Also, maybe an upcoming episode. Oh my God. I want a Birdie Trent episode. Yeah. Oh, I just want a whole though. episode of Birdie Trent. <laughs> He's, He's so my dumb. favorite character. <laughs> Talk about like a fail son, like failing upward. But like you're yeah. rooting for him. <laughs> Yeah, no, I just want to see him, like, oh, man. Okay, I'm, I'm derailing. We can keep going. <laughs> okay, we're fine. Uh, we're going to transition to another book slash trope to talk about, but I wanted to preface it with a thought and then an, then an insight from one of our friends. What are the most hated forms of miscommunication? And I'm going off a gut feeling here, not any sort of survey or something, <laughs> is the half-heard conversation behind the door. Yes, this can be done badly if the revelation is being held up because we need to add more time to the plot and nothing further is revealed about either character than, like I said before, it's just pages. I think it can work and does happen in real life and is something worth investigating, like getting a text or email you weren't supposed to get. And honestly, who among us has not eavesdropped? What do you do with that information about you that's not directed at you? What do you learn about the person who said it? Friend of the podcast, Bailey, who you can find on TikTok under Bailey Reads Books, and probably everywhere under Bailey Reads Books, had a great point on one way to make this work even better. We'll link the video in the show notes as well, but the gist of the video is yes, when a character is listening in on a conversation, if they only stick around for a few more seconds, then they would maybe learn the person actually meant something good. So that's not what she was critiquing. She was saying, that authors shy away from having people actually be cruel to each other. And if the character does something bad, then there's an opportunity for an apology and or for a character to learn something. That was so smart. I know. Like, just like uh, the problem is that you want an interesting character arc. So mm -hmm. if the you just have that like basic type of miscommunication that could be solved because nobody was actually mean. Mm -hmm. Well, what if they were mean? Yes. <laughs> Yes. I would rather read that book. We want them to be meaner. That's the gist of the video. If you're going to listen in on conversation, it should be like that person's actual thoughts and feelings are being heard, and it's not going to be recontextualized into, oh, they're actually good. You just didn't hear all the information or you misunderstood it. There is no character development from that. It's just you already thought they were a good person, and then you were scared for a second, and then you went back to thinking they were a good person. Like, there's, there's, where are we going with that? There's no development. The relationship doesn't change. It goes from, like, annoyance to, like, oh, I like you again because then I now have all the information. I think the best, like, eavesdropping books are not actually solved by hearing the whole conversation because they still said the cruel thing mm -hmm. that they heard at the beginning, um, that there has to be, like, an actual conversation and work beyond just the, the ex uh, explanatory phrase at the, at the end of the overhearing. That's actually really kind of a good segue to your points, Emma. So why don't we skip ahead to that, uh, what you have to say about uh, some other books that are maybe not genre fiction romances. Yeah. And this is one of the things that I'm always surprised when people say that they don't like miscommunication, especially this type of miscommunication, because two of the like foundational texts of how we talk about romance in Western culture involve overhearing and misinterpreting information. So in Pride and Prejudice, when Lizzie overhears Darcy say that she was tolerable but not handsome enough to tempt him, 
she interprets it as confirmation of his uppity nature, coloring every interaction they have for the rest of the novel. She cannot understand his earnest overtures later in the book because she interprets them based on this phrase that was based on his social anxiety. Uh, she's interpreting it as cruelty, something that he never would have said in front of her, but he's just sort of trying to move through the motions of this ball that he doesn't want to be at. And then Wuthering Heights, which is one of my favorite um, novels, and, and not a romance novel, but I do think it colors how we talk about romance, in Kathy's big speech to Nellie Dean, where she famously says, whatever our souls are made of, his and mine are the same, Heathcliff only hears the first part of the speech, where Kathy announces that marriage between the two of them would degrade her, not the part about the fact that she's in love with him. Heathcliff leaves Wuthering Heights thinking that Kathy has no feelings for him when the opposite is true. But both of these characters do say something cruel, and that needs to be worked through in order for the relationship to be repaired. Darcy and Lizzie's relationship obviously is repaired to a successful conclusion, while Kathy and Heathcliff's ends tragically. There's not an interpretation of the, the phrase or the sentence that they said that's cruel that makes it not cruel. It just is context and additional information that maybe would lead to a more charitable interpretation, but it still needs to be problematized in the individual relationship. Yeah, and I and people love that those books are classics. People love them, and they don't really come up uh, in the the frustration with miscommunication because I think maybe deep down we know that miscommunication isn't really the problem. Mm -hmm. But yeah, speaking of um, cruelty, uh, so <laughs> um, so I have a book. Uh, so it's a, actually a genre romance. Um, it's not quite listening at door, but it's basically the same concept. So it's Lady Gallant by Suzanne Robinson. Uh, so instead of listening at a door, it's done through a note or a cipher. So this is a Tudor-era romance set in Queen Mary's court. Christian de Rivers is a handsome, bombastic spy who is used to getting what he wants and bowling over people. He saves Nora Beckett, who is nicknamed Mouse at court, from highwaymen, and he becomes obsessed with picking and prodding at her and testing her boundaries. Nora is also a spy for Elizabeth, although neither Christian or Nora know that each other is a spy, and they have no reason to reveal to each other their occupations. Nora really is a mouse. She is extremely shy and cautious, which makes what she's doing all the more brave. So Christian basically bothers Nora into marrying him, and is honestly <laughs> so sweet and charming and funny. But the night before the marriage, he discovers one of Nora's ciphers that reveals that she is a spy. He thinks that she's a spy for Mary because he can't fathom that his sweet mouse of Honora would risk violent punishment at Mary's court by being a spy for Elizabeth. Not only that, but he believes that her actions, because of what he found in the cipher, almost got his father killed. So he runs with that assumption and wants to kill Nora, but he can't bring himself to do it. Instead, he marries her and then proceeds to treat her so horribly. I think Emma has said before that it's basically the worst thing that you can do outside of bodice ripper violence. So I want to reiterate that he doesn't physically abuse her, but that's not likely to offer much comfort while reading it. This book is famous for its grovel, truly the most epic, satisfying grovel I've ever read. And Christian really has to work to redeem himself once he learns the truth about Nora and realizes what he's done. So this is the listening at doors type of miscommunication. When someone listens at a door, hears half a conversation, then walks away without getting the full context. Christian gets half of the truth, that Nora is a spy, but he bends that half-truth into something sinister, that Nora is a spy for Mary and that she's working against him. The reason he doesn't tell her what he thinks he knows right away is because he wants to punish her. He wants her to wonder why he doesn't love her anymore and what's causing his cruelty. When they met, Nora never told him he was a spy because the cost is too high. She didn't know what Christian's politics were and that he's also at Mary's court. 
There's an easy fix here. Just a brief conversation between the two of them, but Robinson gives you compelling reasons for both characters to hold their cards close to the chest. This is a great example of where we want people to be meaner. It makes so much sense for Christian to be cruel to her because he thinks she's a political enemy and that she has sort of tricked this rakish man into devotion. And so he has that sort of embarrassment too where he's been duped because he considers himself so capable and um, able to manipulate other people. He feels very manipulated and he thinks she's operating with the same level of like spy machinations that he has. But really, he doesn't understand that someone who is a mouse and is timid would also be willing to like stick her neck on the line for these like political um, arrangements that come so easily to his like charming self. So he just doesn't get her. He doesn't understand her being able to do what he does because he, he thinks he only has like one facet of her personality on the surface. That's what he gets and what he's attracted to. But he as he learns more about her, everything sort of clicks into place. Yeah, I think that miscommunication just it honestly is that book is it's nothing without it. Like it just it like builds up this like huge emotional climax, like just like this devastating moment where it makes sense uh, because Robinson builds out each character so well. Like you really love Nora and you think like you become kind of protective over her. Um, like she's just like a very sweet, very gentle person, which makes uh Christian's assumptions about her all that more heartbreaking um related to that I think is he doesn't think he can trust her he thinks that she's his political enemy I don't she doesn't know he's a spy right no yeah so the stakes are high um but that I'm gonna transition into (laughs) our next book based off (laughs) the highlands yes we're gonna go to the highlands um like why are you holding back information and can I trust you So this is Never Cross a Highlander by Elisa Rain. It's the early 1600s and Isla Connery has been kidnapped and enslaved. Now she serves the spoiled princess Elizabeth Stewart at Stirling Castle. Isla longs to return home to the Connery clan. A tournament brings various clans to the castle, including the warrior Callum McNeil. While he serves his adoptive clan leading the warriors, he doubles as a shepherd and frees enslaved people. No one, not even his kin, knows he does this. The night Callum leaves, he orchestrates the others to escape with him. He notices Isla is missing from the group and asks where she is. The other enslaved people have talked to Isla about escaping before, but her response has always been the same, where she says she needs to stay put. They don't know a lot about Isla since she works separately from them. Callum thinks about how he'd encounter people in the past, quote, whose fear of the unknown kept them from seeking freedom. But he's intent on freeing her, so he goes to look for her. He finds her because he doesn't know she's planning to sneak away with the Connery clan, who is also there. And he basically abducts her. Isla has no reason to trust Callum. At the tournament earlier in the day, she saw him accept the gift of two women. Callum doesn't want to insult the king by saying no, but he doesn't believe you should give away another human being. So he accepts them and then turns to his cousin, asking him to ensure they safely reach McNeil land. So all she knows about him is this action, and what she doesn't know is that he's the shepherd. She has no reason to trust him yet. She goes with him when he finds her, and like I said, basically kidnaps her. Her making a fuss would put the others at risk. So after some time has passed, you wonder why she hasn't told him uh, why she wanted to stay, and then it comes out that their clans are rival clans. So this initial miscommunication serves multiple purposes, where we see at one point Isla 
when she starts to trust Callum more, then she does divulge this. Uh, we learn about their clans, and then we get more questions. And one of those questions is, why didn't the Conneries ever look for Isla? So I think that's another aspect of miscommunication people need to keep in their minds is like, what is the level of trust between these two characters? And once people do start revealing information that is telling to the reader, hey, this relationship is progressing. Yeah, (laughs) the relationship (laughs) is progressing. Yeah, this is such a really great example of like when the reader has so much more information than the two characters do about Mm -hmm. each other. So naturally there would be um assumptions yes yes it is i think political enemies um like lend themselves to miscommunication because of this like cross-cultural aspect of it and i think that's even more acute in my beautiful enemy by sherry thomas my beautiful enemy also deals with two people who are at odds with each other culturally Catherine or yingying her chinese name is a half chinese half english woman who is coming to england to try and find jade tablets that her stepfather a powerful chinese politician once returned to china when she gets there, she realizes that her past lover, Leighton Atwood, is not a Persian man that she thought he was, but a proper English gentleman and engaged to another woman. The book is really adventurous and mysterious, so I'll try and talk about it without giving too much plot away. This is another dual timeline book from Thomas, and the primary miscommunication comes in the earlier timeline, when Catherine and Leighton are lovers in China and they both discover the other's political motivations for their travel. Catherine as a spy for her stepfather, and Leighton as a spy for the English government. They both assume that the other was sleeping with them for information and not for romantic reasons. But this is coupled with Thomas spending a lot of time with Catherine and Leighton thinking about communication. First, they are both speaking a second language to each other. Their shared language is Turkic when they first meet, so there are multiple moments of grasping for words to describe big feelings. They both have a skill for language and assimilation, but they acknowledge that part of this comes from their own reticence to speak about themselves at all. It's a cover. Speaking the second language has them struggling to convey the tones that they actually mean to each other. Catherine, especially as she arrives in England, thinks a lot about the differences in communication style between England and China. She points out that England makes small talk about weather. China makes small talk about mealtimes. Small differences can create unease for the communicator. Catherine and Leighton also talk about the respective functions of language, how Chinese does not have consonant clusters in its representation, which makes it incompatible with representing the characters of an alphabetic language like English. But it lends itself to the calligraphy of poetry, one of the skills that Catherine practices throughout the book. But all while struggling with communication, Catherine and Leighton both feel an immediate connection because of this understanding that they have with each other. They both think that the other person is the first person in their lives to get and understand them. I think this speaks to the limitations of language as a bridge between people. Catherine and Lane's communication troubles come when they speak and attempt to limit and confine their shared reality, when they bring their past to their relationship. They know this on some level when they first meet each other as lovers. They don't even tell each other their names because they both know that their names would define them for each other as British and ethnically Manchurian, giving away information that would only lead to bad faith interpretations. I feel like this is right up Emma's alley because she knows so much about language and stuff. But we all like we all have someone in our lives where maybe you're they're not speaking in their first language and just like the difficulty of finding the right emotion to match the word you're looking for. I feel like so much miscommunication has happened with like my German grandmother and my mom because of that. (laughs) Even though she like lived in Canada for fifty years, but it's real, I think. Yeah, and Thomas, English is her second language. She moved to the United States when she was 13 um, uh, from China. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if that, like, 
because I, we've talked about, I think now three Sherry Thomas books on this episode. And I think she really does lots of miscommunication books. And I think it makes sense. Like the, my beautiful enemy is maybe the one that deals with like language as um, like English versus Chinese, or I guess they're speaking Turkish. I don't think the, the character speaks, they don't mention Mandarin or Cantonese um, specifically, um, like which dialect they're speaking. But the, they're dealing with this, like the, you have to learn how to speak to someone else. And it's like, even if you're both speaking English or you have the shared language, the the language that you're bringing to each other might not be the same. And that's why we have like the class difference communication issues, where if someone has been raised as a Duke versus raised in the working class, they may both be speaking English, but the all those subtleties. Um, and that's why I brought up the, the small talk, like with, if, when the English people bring up weather, Catherine is like, this is not that interesting. Like, why are they talking to me about weather all the time? <laughs> mm-hmm. And she remembers that like, this is their sort of like social grease that they put on for social conversations. So she, in order to be polite, she has to learn how to talk about weather. And those sort of small differences where she understands the words that they're saying, but she doesn't understand why they're saying it. I think that can happen whether you're speaking the same language or you're even speaking your native language or not. And But th- Thomas bringing in multiple languages for the characters like makes that more acute for the reader to see how often that happens. I'm so excited to read this one. It's That's so good. Almost... And the prequel is also great. The, pre- the prequel is different because it's it's like a prequel for both of the main characters. So it's mm-hmm. like you get to see them as teens. So you get to see them become the people that they are in the book. It's 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 very interesting. I, I wish the more things were structured that way as prequels. It's not a different couple, but they don't meet each other. They're just like teens on the opposite sides of the world. It's so good. So yeah, I have another book and it's also another one of the political intrigue books. Um, so this type of communication is uh, when characters are kind of deliberately misled to believe fallacies about each other and also how talking after the miscommunication is resolved, doesn't solve everything. So the miscommunication isn't really the problem. So this is At Your Pleasure by Meredith Duran. This is one of those true enemies to lovers that everyone says that they want. It's set in 1715, and it's a second chance romance between two lovers on the opposite side of a rebellion. To understand the miscommunication, you have to go backwards. Nora and Adrian are young neighbors who have fallen in love. Adrian and his family are Catholic, and at the time, this meant that they lived under restrictive laws that limited property rights. Nora's family is Church of England, so their relationship is already taboo, but the young lovers want each other badly enough to want to run away together and marry. Nora's family finds out about this, and Nora's brother beats Adrian within an inch of his life and tries to scare him off, and Nora is forced to marry someone else. Adrian arrives at her wedding and leaves despondently, thinking that Nora rejected him out of cowardice. This is a spoiler, so skip this part if you'd like, maybe like 30 seconds. Uh, But Nora was also pregnant with Adrian's child and was abused by her father until she agreed to marry another man. So Nora is young, frightened, and alone. Her father then tricks her into taking a supplement that causes her to miscarry. When they meet again years later in 1715, Nora is now a widow, and Adrian has renounced Catholicism in order to gain social mobility and to get an in with the king, George I. Nora's family are Tories who have aligned themselves with James Stewart, the Scottish Catholic who is attempting to usurp the throne. Her father and brother are in exile, but they've embroiled Nora in their scheme and put her life in danger. So there's a miscommunication from the past that keeps them at arm's length, as both of them have good reason to believe that they're hated by the other party. Nora has seen Adrian at court, but he studiously ignored her, angry at what he saw as her perfidity. But even when they come together and rekindle their relationship, and they both learn the truth about what happened... The uprising is keeping them apart, so talking doesn't solve everything. Adrian's main task is convincing Nora that her family is fighting a lost cause and that they're dragging her down with them by her skirts, 
but she's fiercely loyal to them, and she doesn't understand how Adrian could so easily renounce his own upbringing, his Catholicism, for self-preservation. It's honestly so gut-wrenching because Adrian is put in this impossible position where he realizes that he will do anything to save Nora's life, but whatever he chooses is likely to be seen by her as a betrayal. I'm very excited to read this book. <laughs> it's just oh, it's just like one of the most like like I read this and Ravishing the Heiress back to back and I was just like I need a nap. I need a, uh, I had the full body tension like um because Duran's uh, books, I feel like, shift in tone a little bit more than Thomas. Like, Thomas, I think, kind of keeps her foot on the gas pedal for almost all of them, whereas Duran's not all of them like that. I think this one and Duke of Shadows in particular. But, like, she does political intrigue very well. But, yeah, I about the miscommunication in this book, like, it is it is a big misunderstanding um, that kind of colors how they see each other and how they approach each other for a lot of the book. But, like, when you take away that miscommunication, they're still in the same place. Yeah, the damage is done. Like we've talked about, you can't just undo that because you talked about it. And even if you understand why the person acted that way based off half information, it still hurts. Like, you can't just think away your feelings. Yeah, it's like they're, they're both still a little bit raw from that. And they're both still on opposite sides of the rebellion. Yeah, when people complain about miscommunication, I often my response is often like, well, what do you want? Do you want external conflict? Because to me, like bringing in some of that political intrigue makes the book like a hybrid genre. Mm-hmm. But I think this is a good example of where it's it can still be this like true romance. But in historical romance, things are going to be in some sort of context. Like, I think that's a, a boon of the genre that some of the the most satisfying books have this like very specific political moment that they're in. I, there are books that sort of exist in like a Jane Austen sort of bubble. Um, and those are also fun to read. But when these books have like we're talking about very specific political figures or um, we're talking about very specific sort of political intrigue, those sort of external factors shape all of our lives like we even though we may in our everyday lives we don't necessarily feel like we're in the middle of political intrigue our whole worlds affect how we communicate with each other and it does real communication doesn't happen in a vacuum so there are books that happen in the jane austen bubble where miscommunication can be sort of like that one layer of misinterpreting words or overhearing something and and misinterpreting it or not hearing the whole thing but in these the sort of other side of the spectrum of historical romance that is specifically situated you can't have miscommunication be solved by one conversation because it's going to have to take action and some sacrifice. Yeah, this is a brilliant blend of internal and external conflict. Sometimes when I think people are asking for low stakes or just little conflict between the actual couple, I'm like, okay, so you should read like romantic suspense. Like all of your conflict is coming from other sources Mm -hmm. as opposed to the internal does this person like me am I showing too much emotion like that those kinds of questions Mm -hmm. yeah and then after while thinking about this Duran book like I thought of another of like the because enemies to lovers is also another one like I see a lot of people and I think these are contemporary readers who Mm -hmm. are like if to be enemies to lovers they have to actually be like I want to kill you enemies and that's something that you do get in historicals a lot like Mm -hmm. at least some of the older ones that deal with um, more politics outside of the regency Um, and so, uh, a lot of the historicals I've read, like I was thinking of Keeper of the Dream by Penelope Williamson. I was reading that. That's another of this brand of enemies to lovers where the conflict is they kind of want to kill each other. Like they are, they're, 
they're on opposite sides. They've been raised on opposite sides. And so, but that's not the crux of it. There are also like little misunderstandings that are built into it, like cultural misunderstandings or uh, actions that are seen in the worst possible light because you've been raised to believe that this person is your enemy. Yes. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> and we're running close on time. So yeah. <laughs> um, we hope this episode about miscommunication was interpreted correctly. And that this <laughs> new understanding will lead you to your character growth and will aid in your interpersonal communications henceforth. Uh, also, thank you so much for listening to Reformed Rakes. If you enjoy this podcast, you can find bonus content on our Patreon at patreon.com slash reformedrakes. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram for show updates. The username for both is at Reformed Rakes. 